right, what is going on, everybody? Good Friday morning to you. Jared Atkins coming to you live this morning. Um, I always say coming to you live, and then we're never, ever live. It's always delayed. I need to think of something better. This is uh, running on very little sleep talk. Anyways, uh, going to bust out a solo edition, a Weeknight Chronicles an abbreviated version, and there is absolutely, this week, no shortage of sports news to talk about. And I want to start this morning by talking a little bit about collegiate football. Collegiate. Damn, what the fuck, Jared? A little bit of college football here. Uh, I've mentioned this in previous episodes that we could do a whole episode on this, this conference realignment that's going on, schools flipping and joining this conference, and how it's in correlation to um, geographic location and all this shit. We all know the story. The Arguably the two biggest schools in the Big 12 uh, are leaving the Big 12 to go to the SEC in 2025, that being Oklahoma and Texas. Well, earlier this week, some information came down, and it, 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 uh, it changed throughout the week, even up to last night. Now it looks like... Uh, Oklahoma and Texas are going to be joining the SEC next season for 2024 uh, as they have agreed to pay in principle to the Big 12 Conference, each school, a total of $100 million to join the SEC a year earlier than intended. Now, of course, this is subject to final approval from both Oklahoma and Texas's governing boards, um, but... It looks like this is a done deal and it's going to happen. Uh, there, there's a lot of details about this out there in the Google machine. If you guys want to take a trip down there, uh, it probably explain it a little bit better than I could. Uh, it's a hefty amount of money to pay, but obviously they want out of this. And as much as I shit on the SEC, even though I do enjoy watching Auburn football, I do enjoy watching... I love Tennessee volunteer football, and I love uh, I love Louis, uh, LSU Tiger football. I love watching those three schools play, even though I hate the SEC. Uh, but when it comes to collegiate football, the SEC is the be-all, end-all. Oklahoma and Texas want nothing to do with the Big 12 anymore. They want to be out. Uh, you can't tell me that even though the Big 12 is a Power 5 conference, you can't tell me that there's not better opportunities and more money to be made by being a part of the SEC than there is being with the Big 12. So who can fault them? I personally think leaving a year early is a shitty move, though. I mean, my God, you signed the contract, you're leaving. The Big 12, you know, they're losing arguably their two biggest schools. Uh, actually, they're. I'm not going to argue at all. In my opinion, it, it stops and ends in the Big 12 with Oklahoma and Texas. No offense to Arizona, or Arizona, excuse me, uh, Kansas and Kansas State and Oklahoma State, and all these other schools. Now, the Big 12 is adding some more schools as well. Central Florida's coming over. The Houston Cougars, the Cincinnati Bearcats, uh, BYU's coming over. So there's more schools coming in. And I just I just wanted to throw this out here that, uh, I mean, if you're, if you're what's another year? You've had this agreement. This agreement's been in place for two or three seasons now. Uh, that I can remember. I don't know when the news first started coming out, but it's been in play for two or three seasons now, two or three years now. Uh, 
dating back to pre-COVID or right after COVID that I can remember. What's another year to wait? Uh, but apparently there's some deals coming down with this to uh, the $100 million in exit fees is going to go to give some money to Fox because uh, Fox is losing uh, 7 to 10 Texas and Oklahoma football games. And a key part of the deal was there was negotiations between uh, Texas playing Big Ten School Michigan in Ann Arbor. Uh, just, just a lot going on. So, uh, I just, there will be a future episode about, uh, this whole conference realignment and teams jumping from this conference to this conference and correlation to geography and geographic location. And I just, uh, it, certain things just irk the shit up. Like Maryland being, Maryland's part of the Big Ten now, right? That's an ACC school. Like, Maryland has no business being in the Big Ten. They are in the Big Ten, right? Anyways, uh, it, it's an interesting story to keep your eye on uh, if you're if you're into this sort of thing. And I will definitely do my best to to stay on top of this to give you information about this as we progress. Uh, college football is getting a shakeup in the last handful of years with all these schools switching conferences. And uh, this really makes me think back to, didn't Gonzaga leave the Mountain West to join the Pac-10? And it's not even a Pac-10 anymore. It's a a what, a Pac-12 or a Pac-14 or whatever it is. It's not even a Pac-10 anymore. But I always look at this as this was a jump point when Gonzaga jumped from the Mountain West Conference over. Don't quote me on that. Now, I don't want to sound like a dumbass. I do a good enough job of that on my own. Kurt would agree. Um, we love you, Kirk Kelly. Uh, yeah, I think they were in the mountain. What? Anyways, it's you know what? Fuck it, let's move on. Uh, it's just uh, the landscape of college football and college athletics has just evolved and changed so rapidly. It's just uh, you never know what school is going to be where playing for what Power Five conference. So, anyways. Speaking of the SEC, uh, did you guys see this? Uh, Greg Sankey, for those of you that know, you know. For those of you that don't, Greg Sankey is the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. Uh, it said, and I just I just told this out there just so you can see how much money is really out there. Uh, he told Thursday the press that... Uh, the SEC conference divided $721.8 million of its revenue amongst the schools. For all 14 members in the conference, that equated out to $49.9 million. $50 million to each school. Okay? This, this comes down from uh, all the revenue that's generated from all the television agreements with like SEC networks and uh, ESPN. Does ESPN doesn't have the SEC yet, do they? That's next year, isn't it? Um, anyways, from, from television agreements, from the bowl games, from the college football playoffs, the SEC championship game, the, the SEC men's basketball tournament games, NCAA championships, and various other sources – and that's not including 
That's not including almost $9 million in grants from both the NCAA and the SEC that gets divided amongst these 14 schools in the conference. That's just a crazy amount of money. $50 million in revenue. $50 million, like, astronomical. That's why I will always say at any level, professional, college, or high school, sports is a business. That's why I've used that quote, tub and blue in the face. At the end of the day, if there's money to be made, the money will be made. And uh, $50 million to each school. 14 schools, $50 million. Wow. So I'd like to uh, to talk about Kevin Harvick for a minute. I know uh, the very last time uh, we were together, friends, uh, just about two weeks ago, or maybe it was a week ago, whenever, we talked about Kevin Harvick. Uh, Harvick's not going to have very long in retirement before he's up to work because uh, as soon as he's done driving, and as we all know, this 2023 year is going to be his swan song, Immediately following that, Fox is bringing him in to put him in the booth. Now, I personally think this is awesome. Again, I've uh, I've slowly gotten back into NASCAR over the last handful of years. I find myself rooting a lot for uh, Dave Blaney's boy, Ryan Blaney, which for those of us local, you might remember, Dave Blaney spent some time driving the number 77 Jasper Engines and Transmissions car if I'm not mistaken, which I could be. I was a teenager, a child. It's been a long time ago. Uh, But I've slowly started getting back into NASCAR. Harvick's always been an okay guy with me. Harvick has always been an okay guy with me. Excuse me just a second. So I personally think this is phenomenal. Now, for those of you that do not know, or or maybe do, this is not going to be a hard transition for Kevin Harvick because Harvick has done guest analyst work for them off and on since about, I want to say 2016, maybe, uh, give or take a year, maybe 2015, maybe 2017. He's done a lot of guest analyst work for them in the past. Now, from what it appears to, uh, he's already on tap, even though this is going to be his swan song this year. He is going to be in the booth for Fox Sports 1 uh, sporadically throughout this year, he's scheduled to call a number of uh, of uh, Bush Grand National Series. Oh, damn it, here I'm stuck in 1998 again. Uh, he's scheduled to cover a number of Xfinity Series races and some Craftsman Truck Series. What's well, not even Craftsman Truck Series anymore? It's just Truck Series. Uh, he's going to call some Truck Series races for this, but next year he will join the incomparable Mike Joy and Clint Boyer. Or as they say in Louisiana, Clint Boyer, uh, he will do the entire Cup schedule in 2024. Now Harvard talked to the Associated Press earlier this past week and said, "quote I knew that this was something I always wanted to do because it gives you such a unique position to be able to talk about the sport and be able to use your knowledge and relationships to be able to give the fans and the people a great perspective." This has really been a conversation that's been happening for several years. The timing was just never really right. Now it's all worked out, and it's a great time to be able to transition to this and have a voice in the sport and remain a part of NASCAR racing on a weekly basis and talk about the things I love. Now, 
I think this is phenomenal. Uh, you go back to 2001 at Daytona. Uh, I was 14 years old when we lost Dale Earnhardt. Uh, I never had a beef with Harvick. Harvick was always a guy I respected. Harvick was always a guy I liked. And uh, we've talked. We talked a lot about Harvick's past just a few episodes ago in one of our Weeknight Chronicle archives. You can find it all there. But um, I think he's going to be a phenomenal addition to the boot. Here's my thing. When it comes to commentators and broadcasting, whether it's, look at me, getting my pro wrestling reference in, whether it's uh, a WWE show, whether it's somebody in the NFL, whenever you can take a former star of the sport and make them an analyst versus someone who just likes to talk about the sport, it's always a great addition to your booth that can always drive home the points that these guys know what they're talking about. They've been through these experiences. They can really help you tell the story that you're wanting to show on camera and paint the picture for your audience. So, and I think this is just phenomenal. And again, I say uh, I want to wish Kevin Harvick, uh, not that he'll ever hear this, but I'd like to wish Kevin Harvick the absolute best swan song ever. Uh, to be able to go out of a sport on your own terms and go out as a top competitor Man, you can't beat that. Like, you can't beat that. So, uh, that's something to look forward to. You know, I want to transition to Major League Baseball right now. And I like tra- transition to Major League Baseball, and I like to talk about pitching. Of course. You know, what have we always talked about on these baseball? I love pitching. I build around pitching. Go back almost 15 years now. Uh, one of my favorite pitchers was you Darvish. You think about the great things he did with the Texas Rangers and everything. you uh, Darvish, uh, he got paid. Uh, according to Jeff Passan, who is a great uh, ESPN baseball analyst, uh, Darvish and the Padres... Uh, are in agreement on a six-year, $108 million contract, which contains a full no-trade provision. Uh, and it, the contract's going to run through 2028. Now, Darvis is currently about 35, 36 years old, so you know he's going to be 41, 42 when this deal is done. Now, if you go back, uh, back to after the World Series, I do believe it was, or somewhere about the time of the World Series, on one of our episodes, or it might have been even back further than that in the summer, somewhere around the trade deadline and or the end of the season, uh, I talked at length about how scary the San Diego Padres were, how they were just, man, the things they were doing, the pieces they moved at the trade deadline, what they had done in free agency, and all this stuff. Uh, this is going to be a lights-out scary team to contend with. Uh Man, uh, you just, um, I'm, I'm tongue-tied thinking about it. That NL West is going to be tight. Uh, you know, I'm not seeing enough from Arizona. I'm not seeing enough from Colorado. I'm not seeing enough from the Giants. Right now, this division is all the Dodgers, Kurtz Dodgers. Uh, but Dodgers are going to have some competition with San Diego this year. I believe they're going to put the pieces together 
And th- this is, uh, yeah. But anyways, getting back to Darvish's deal now, this is he's going to be making a ballpark eighteen to twenty million dollars a season, uh, which is a little bit of a pay cut compared to what he had been making in prior years. It's going to it's going to run him about three to five million dollars a year less. But hey, when you're still making eighteen to twenty million dollars a day, that's there's not a bad deal at the office. Uh, but now this is going to jump the Padres to having. Uh, a top five payroll in Major League Baseball with with all the the moving pieces they've had over the last few years. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but now Darvish is uh, he's never won a Cy Young award. He's finished he's finished as a runner up a few times over the over the uh, his Major League career. Uh, he does have. He's a five-time All-Star, and he does have under a four ERA, which is not a bad day at the office. He's somewhere around a three to three fifty ERA uh, so far over the last ten years of his career. So, I, I, again, putting this together, this Padres team is going to be scary. Okay, you've got Xander Bogarts who joined in December. You've got Tatis who will be coming back from his suspension. Uh, and then, you know, you still got Manny Machado, who, by the way, could be in his last year in San Diego, because if I remember correctly, Manny Machado has an, has an uh, uh, option, so he can opt out after this upcoming season, I do believe. Uh, I just wanted to give us time to talk about, you know, Darvish. Uh, I've always been a fan of you, Darvish. Uh, just rocket-handed right-hander. Uh, you know, be interesting to see, that's for sure. I would love to have Kurt Kelly sitting here with me to tell you about this next piece of news. Uh, but he's unavailable right now. <laughs> Obviously, it's early in the morning. So I'm going to talk about So, um, the MLB, and I got to talk, I got to talk my pitching. The MLB is going to try another experiment this year. So not only are they they doing things with the pitching, like the pitch count or the pitch clock, which uh, again they stole from us. You don't believe it? Go back to our third episode way back in the archives, wherever you get your Steel Toes and Scoreboards podcast, whatever audio channel you use. Go back into our archives. Look up episode three, recorded in June. Of 2021, where it's talking about Commissioner Kelly turns around the MLB. Uh, we talked about a pitch count. Uh, and I'm always going to say the MLB, since we cover uh, 75% of the sports we seem to talk about on full-length episodes, is baseball. I like to make the joke they stole from us. Excuse me. Anyways, my fat ass is rambling. I should be talking, not rambling. So here we go. Uh... Major League Baseball is now going to permit pitchers in spring training to wear wristbands that's going to let them signal to the catcher what's coming next. Essentially, for the first time in history, or new history, depending on you know league rules and periods of baseball that change and whatnot, for the first time in a long time, maybe even ever, pitchers are going to be allowed to call their own pitches instead of the catchers calling the pitches for them. Stupid, right? You should always be able to call whatever pitch you want. Uh, basically, this experiment's going to start February 24th, so just about two weeks from now, when the exhibition play for the season starts. 
with the Seattle, San Diego, and Texas, Kansas City matchups for the Cactus League. Now, all 30 teams will then be scheduled to be in action the following day, February 25th. This is basically what this is, is the pitchcom system that's been talked about over the last season or two uh, that MLB teams were allowed to employ last season, which is basically, if you guys remember, you've seen the catcher wearing push buttons on the wristband. This was triggered to an earpiece inside the catcher's hat. It would allow them to call for fastballs, curveballs, change-ups, anything else along with location and speed on the pitches. Well, MLB has decided, you know what, we're going to put the power, we're going to put control in the pitcher's hands. These guys are big boys. They're, they're, they're grown-ass men. They're not babies. They're not in diapers. You know, their dicks have dropped. Their balls have dropped. You know what, fuck it. We're just going to let them do it. So the MLB has decided we're going to go ahead and try this. We're going to evaluate how things go, and then we'll make the decision whether or not we approve it for the regular season. Now, of course, with this becomes cause and concern and worry about uh, clubs stealing catcher signals either by alerting opponents or you know some sort of electronic you know MacGyver bullshit. Uh, so. The teams and pitchers' batteries are, uh, you know, yeah. I lost my train of thought. Damn, I was on such a roll. I was, I was fucking, you know, just. Whew. Anyways, there's still some cause for concern that there's going to be some shenanigans. Shenanigans. I swear to God, I'll piss the whip the next guy that says shenanigans. Hey, Farva, what's that restaurant you like with all the good... Oh, you mean shenanigans? Oh, put those away! Sorry. I'm running on like two hours sleep, y'all. Shout out Super Troopers. Cult classic. Uh, so, uh, you know, this, this is gonna be, uh... This is gonna be something to see. Um... I like the idea that you're putting power in the pitcher's hands. Uh, I've often said on this show, even though I've been blue in the face, I don't feel there's any position more important on the team than the pitcher. I don't care, dude. You can get a hot bat anywhere. Somebody will pick up. You can't always find a game caller pitcher. You can't always find a hang, a tough hangman, hang him in, hang him out, sit him up, sit him down, nine-inning pit bull. That gets out there on the mound, just digs in and rakes and just deals for nine innings. You should be letting these guys make their own decisions. You should be giving these guys responsibility. These guys should be in charge of Toronto. It's no different than giving the quarterback a position. Peyton Manning, what's the infamous story we always heard? What did Tom Moore and Howard Mudd do? They sent Peyton in three plays and his headset. And Peyton would pick the play to run. Because they had that much trust in him. And he's the quarterback. They're letting him call the game. A pitcher should be no different. And I'm not saying every pitcher out there is, uh, what's a pitching equivalent of Peyton Manning? Randy Johnson? Justin Verlander? Roger Clemens? Nolan Ryan? The list goes on and on and on. I'm not saying every guy's those guys. But I think you should trust them enough to see what happens. And uh, I'm super stoked about this, y'all. 
I am super stoked. I am going to, uh, excuse me, as I've said multiple times this last few months, I was not a good sports fan in 2022. I had so much going on with this new job and this podcast and launching my second podcast and everything. I did not have time. I've only been able, in all of 2022, baseball, football, basketball, collegiate sports, NHL, I have only had very few times to sit down and maybe watch 10 games of something. I was just that busy. So I'm going to be a better fan this year, and it's going to start with baseball. And I cannot wait. Uh, Let's shift gears and talk a little bit of pro wrestling. We're going to talk some WWE. Is that cool? Great, thanks. Uh, (laughs) So uh, earlier this week, uh, the WWE announced that uh, one of its uh, big four, I refuse to call money in the bank a big five. So I, I... you know, there was a big five in the 90s. That was Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, King of the Ring, SummerSlam, Survivor Series. I refuse to call Money in the Bank a big five. That's just me. I'm being an ass. Right now, to me, there's only a big four. That's, you know, Royal Rumble in January, Mania, March, April, SummerSlam, August, and Survivor Series, November. Either way, WWE announced that on August 5th, This guy's birthday, August 5th, 1987. On August 5th, at Ford Field, Detroit's home in the Detroit Lions, Ford Field, uh, SummerSlam will take place. Now, this is going to be the third straight year that they're doing an NFL stadium for SummerSlam, which is ballsy. Because it's, you know, long since been argued that SummerSlam is their second biggest event of the year, beating out the Warrior Rumble, and obviously nothing beats WrestleMania. Uh, but they're going to hold the third consecutive event at an NFL stadium because they did it last year in Nashville and they did it in 2021 uh, in Las Vegas. Now, something that's interesting here is, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot of WWE on the program as of late about the state of the company and the potential sale and this going on, this going on, and how much I hate Nick Khan's guts. I just can't stand Nick Khan. He's... Nick Khan is a con man. That being said, two or three weeks ago, they held the Warrior Rumble from the Alamo Dome in San Antonio. Fun fact, in 1997, I as a nine, not quite ten, I as a nine-year-old boy watched the 1997 Warrior Rumble from the Alamo Dome. But they ran the Alamo Dome for this year's 2023 Warrior Rumble. They broke the gate record in January. $7.7 million at the gate. That's not accounting. That's not including all your pay-per-view buys for those that don't have the WWE Network or whatever. That's not counting your merchandising at the event. That is $7.7 million for the building at the gate. That's, That's gate. You know, they had 52000 and some change in the building. But my God, seven po- that's almost $8 million at a gate. At a gate. For a pro wrestling event. And I mean, uh, yeah, WrestleMania does a lot of good numbers too. But still, like that, that that's $7.7 million with only 52000 and change. You know, WrestleManias are doing 70, 80, 90, 100 plus thousand. 
Uh, this, the, I just want to put that in. I think this is going to be a great. Uh, SummerSlam has been a yearly tradition in August every year since 1988, with last year being the exception. 2022, it was held in July. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where we're at when we get there. Uh, the state of the company, who who is owning the company, if it's still McMahon family owned, if it has been sold to another party, looking at you, Disney, looking at you. Uh, anyway, we'll see what happens. Let's get to some NFL-based stuff. Obviously, uh, real quick off the top of my head, uh, Patrick Mahomes just took home his second uh, MVP. Award, so congratulations to him. Look what they're getting out of that little Texas Tech Red Raider, man. So the 2023 Hall of Fame class was announced, and we will get to that momentarily. But I would like to take a minute to look forward to the potential class of 2024 uh, and look at the ones who are first-time eligible. Uh, of course, as you know, per NFL rules, you have to wait um, five years post-retirement to get into the NFL, I think it is. And uh, don't get me wrong, the, when you come to Professional Sports Hall of Fames, when you get to the Professional Sports Hall of Fames, there is none harder to get into than Cooperstown for baseball. But I think none are more prestigious or maybe even you could say the second hardest to get into than the NFL. Uh, but now this this upcoming list for 2024 is simply amazing of the first-time eligible players. And I can seriously go through this list and like, yep, that's a check, that's a check, that's a check, that's a check. Uh, starting with uh, Julius Peppers, that Fantastic Carolina Panthers defensive end. Uh, he was a two-time All-Decade selection, played 17 seasons. Uh, Julius Peppers, number 90. Man, he was a fucking beast, dude. Just, I have so many images in my mind of him just pouncing on guys like uh, Drew Brees. And, God, who are some of the Falcons quarterbacks there? Uh, Vic and Matt Schaub. Was Joey Harrington played a little bit there? Just, uh, anyways, uh, the next guy that's eligible next season, and this guy ought to be a shoe-in. Uh, I, I often said this guy was a first ballot Hall of Famer, so I have no doubt that this guy's going into Canton next year in his first year of eligibility, and that's Antonio Gates. Uh, 16 seasons with the Chargers, uh, 17th all-time in receptions, 3rd all-time among tight ends, 7th all-time in touchdown catches. Uh, another guy... Now this is this is where it's going to uh, this is where it's going to get interesting. Uh, Andrew Luck, his first time eligible. Now, obviously, eighty percent of our downloads come out of the state of Indiana because we're an Indiana-based podcast. Uh, this is near and dear to my heart. Uh, everybody knows my love for Andrew Luck. I watched him play at Stanford. 
I thought, man, this guy's great. Then it become apparent, oh my God, we might get Andrew Luck. And then I'll never forget the quote made by Jeff Saturday one morning, just a random weekday morning on NFL Total Access. Jeff Saturday, who snapped Peyton Manning the ball for 14 seasons, or however long it was, 12 seasons, 14 seasons. I don't know. They weren't together right away. Jeff Saturday said, and he said the term we, because even though he had been retired and he was doing analyst work for NFL Network at the time in 2012, uh, I can't believe 2012 was 11 years ago already. Anyways, Jeff Saturday, using the term we, once a Colt, always a coach, said, how lucky are we as a franchise to get a, a to get two back-to-back franchise quarterbacks and be set up for 30 years? You know, 15 years with Peyton, 15 years with Luck. And I never forgot that. And I look at a lot of people that shit on Andrew Luck. And here's my thing. No, we didn't win a Super Bowl when Andrew was in town. We tasted the playoffs quite a few times. No, we weren't going to win the Deflategate game. I don't care what the air pressure and the weight and the inflation PSI of the footballs were, we got stopped 44 to whatever the fuck it was, or 34 to whatever. We got our asses kicked. That was Ursay being petty when we hung an AFC finalist banner up. I've been to Lucas Oil Stadium several times. There's a banner, and you've seen it if you've been up there. It says 2014 AFC finalist because we made it to the AFC title game against New England. When wasn't nobody going to stop New England that night? The deflate game game, wasn't nobody going to stop New England. We didn't have a fucking prayer. Okay? Andrew walked away because of his health. And in this time period we are, and trust me, I have bitched about this, about saying, my God, we ought to duct tape pillows to him out there and make it flag football. Yeah, I complain about some of the safety protocols going on nowadays, and I shouldn't. You got a guy that's leaving on his terms because he had some bad injuries, some bad concussions and shit. We should commend a guy for walking away. One of the most despicable acts I've ever witnessed, not as a Colts fan, but as a sports fan in general, was watching our fan base boo Andrew Luck. Boo him. After the announcement came out that he's retiring or at his press conference or wherever the fuck it was, I can't remember. You can find the footage on YouTube. I know you can. I've watched it. To hear them boo this man. Disgusting. Immature. Completely unnecessary. I firmly believe, and I will go to my grave saying this, had Andrew Luck stayed, Indianapolis would have got a Super Bowl. Now, I'm not saying how many we would have got. I guarantee we would have got at least one. That is a once-in-a-generation quarterback. No, we didn't get 30 years of, of dominance like I wanted. Damn it. But you know what? I appreciate the memories, Andrew. Now, to say he deserves to be put into the Hall of Fame? Uh, not for me to decide. All that ball washing and ball rubbing I did for you, Andrew. 
I'm all back away from this because I, I don't think you deserve to go in. Uh, other names that are first year eligible next year, of course, uh, Sebastian Janikowski. Uh, shout out to the Oakland Raiders drafting a quarterback in the first round of the draft. God, I love you, Al Michaels. Uh, running back Jamal Charles, who was a beast in his own right. Wide receiver Brandon Marshall. Now, I can see Brandon Marshall going in. Um, I can see Brandon Marshall going in. Uh, anyways, and just some other names. Uh, I don't know. I don't have them all, but but what I actually do have though is I have the the list of Hall of Famers going in this year in 2023. Uh, led by uh. And this is a travesty if this guy was not in the league. I used to think of this guy a lot in the league. I just caught myself. It's a travesty if this guy's just now going in. I don't know how many years now that he's been retired, but Zach Thomas, uh, I'm not a Miami Dolphins fan, but when I thought of those linebacking cores that the Chicago Bears had with, with Brian Urlacher back in the day, every time I thought of Urlacher, I thought of Zach Thomas for the Miami Dolphins. Uh, Zach Thomas was a beast. Uh, Zach Thomas is going in. Uh, now, Joe Thomas, third number, third overall pick in 2007 by the Cleveland Browns out of Wisconsin. That really started the genesis for what happened in the 2008 draft, which is I've referenced before. The 2008 draft was the year where there were like 10 or 12 or however many offensive linemen taken in the first round. That was when ESPN, or not yet, that was when Sports Illustrated come out with the with the issue the following month of the draft, and the headline said heavy beef because it talked about how it was so offensive lineman dominated. That I believe that was set in stone a year before with Joe Thomas coming in, all this hype, going number three overall, and what he did for that Cleveland Browns franchise and a rookie quarterback drafted 22nd overall in 2007 for the Browns, which was Brady Quinn out of Notre Dame. Um. Other people going in. Uh, I love me some Barber Twins, and I always love Rondé, the defensive back, more than I did Tiki, the running back. Rondé Barber's going in. Again, travesty. Super Bowl champion, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 2002. Rondé Barber should have already been in the Hall of Fame. Here's one I shit on a lot. Darrell Revis. I got so sick and tired of hearing about Revis Island, man. Uh, And that was another... Good group of uh, cornerbacks that came in that 2008-2009 class, whatever it was. Uh, Revis was in that class. Leon Hall, which I believe came out of Michigan, was in that class. Uh, there was one other running back. Can somebody out there get in your Google machine? No, I was wrong. That was 2007. So it was Revis. That would have been Leon Hall, because I'm looking at it right now. I got in the Google machine myself. Uh that was Leon Hall out of Michigan. I was correct. But there was one more. Uh, would it have been Aaron Ross out of Texas going to the Giants? Is that the other one I'm thinking of? That might have been. Anyways, I can think of uh, so many better. In my mind, Revis really started to get on in 2008, 2009. But I can think of so many other corners at the time that I preferred opposed to him. Uh, Asante Samuel, 
My favorite, number 21, Oakland Raiders, Nemandi Asamoah. Okay, like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and Drew Brees, Brett Favre, never even dared to challenge Nemandi Asamoah. Okay? Uh, to put Revis up on this pedestal for all these seasons saying Revis Island, Revis Island, Revis Island. He's a fantastic fucking player. He made his way into Canton, didn't he? I just personally think the hype was a little too much. And that's just me. But, I mean, stats also don't lie. So it could just be my ego that I'm being an egotistical prick. I'm not saying I'm not an egotistical prick. I've proven it before on the podcast. I've proven it in real life when there ain't no mics around me. I'm just saying, I got so sick. Revis Island, Revis Island, Revis Island. Who gives a fuck? But regardless, congratulations, Darrell Revis. Uh... Of course, also going in was uh, is uh, Don Coriel, who, and I know Kurt will back me up if he's here because we've talked about Eric Coriel a lot. Uh, Don Coriel should have already been in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Don Coriel was one of my favorite coaches of all time. I mean, obviously, I didn't get to see him coach. I really hated doing that in the mic, and there's no way to edit that out. I'm sorry. Uh, not much I can do with the earbud microphones. Apologize. Um, another guy, uh, Don Coriel's offense, and Coriel, Dan Fouts, Kellen Winslow, and I, and you know, I'm a Miami Hurricane fan. So I love Kellen Winslow Jr. And he was did not achieve the same level of success that his dad, Kellen Winslow Sr. did. But my God, Dan Fouts to Kellen Winslow Sr. I mean, not saying I'm talking about the wide receiver core either, but still. And then, of course, probably my favorite part of what will be this summer's uh, 2023 Hall of Fame class, uh, DeMarcus Ware taking his rightful place in Canton. DeMarcus Ware made me feel intimidated, and I was watching on a black box. wasn't on the field. DeMarcus Ware had that same nasty attitude that made you piss your pants like only the greatest pass rusher of all time could, Lawrence Taylor. Yes, I said it. LT is the greatest pass rusher of all time. Lawrence Taylor. Man. I could talk about LT all day. You know, oh, you know what? 2023 episode, Steel Toes and Scoreboards. We're going to do a look back at Lawrence Taylor's career. My show. Kurt's show. Our show. My show. Our show. I think we're going to do it. Write that down. All you listen, write that down and send me that in a message so I don't forget. So uh, we're we're gonna end the show on on basketball and stuff because there's some cool Kobe Bryant news and then of course the NBA trade deadline. Uh, but before we get there, callbacks, uh, probably two what I consider probably. Two of the top five biggest stories in sports all of last year. 
was, of course, um, Live Golf, which we've covered till we've been blue in the face, and the Mississippi State Welfare Fog Front involved with Bret Hart's name, Bret Hart, Bret Favre, excuse me, I'm thinking pro wrestling, uh, that Bret Favre's name is attached to. And one of our favorite things in this show is callbacks. So we're, we're going to have a callback to that. Brett Favre has now issued lawsuits against Shad White, who is the state auditor in this Mississippi State welfare fraud case. He's also issued a defamation of character lawsuit against both Shannon Sharp and Pat McAfee. Oh, yeah. It's getting, it's getting good, y'all. You heard that right. Uh, the auditor in the case, he's filed a defamation of character lawsuit against, and he's filed one against Shannon Sharp and Pat McAfee. So how did we get there? Well, let's just get a rolling. So this lawsuit against uh, Shad White, the auditor, uh, he's the one who first discovered these fraudulent spending and all this shit that happened that led to criminal charges uh, against six different people, uh, professional wrestling family, the DiBiase family, uh, Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase's sons are involved in this to an extent, and uh, a whole lot of other people. Um, Favre's lawsuit against White claims that White shamelessly and falsely attacked Favre's good name uh, to advance his political career. Now, what's interesting about this is I have told you guys to have been blue in the face last year. Brett Favre has not been criminally charged in anything involving this case. The, the missing TANF funds and all that, and, and we'll get that. Favre has not been charged with a single thing, and this story's been ongoing since uh, last summer, late last spring. Uh, the lawsuit says, quote, Mr. White has made egregiously false and defamatory statements accusing the Favre of stealing taxpayer funds and knowingly misusing funds designed to serve poor folks. Everything Auditor White has said about this case is true and backed by years of audit work won by the professionals at the Office of the State Auditor, said Fletcher Freeman. Fletcher Freeman is a spokesman for the Mississippi State Auditor's Office. Uh, He came out with those comments just yesterday afternoon, publicly releasing them to the media. Now, Favre become involved in this case because uh, White's office discovered that seventy-seven million dollars, and I've and you can again you can find uh, throughout various and I don't remember what episodes they are. They're all weeknight chronicle episodes. Uh, last summer in our archives, wherever you get your pod uh, your your podcast at, uh, we've talked about this in multiple episodes. But there's one episode in particular where I break down the entire case. Uh, at length for like a good 15 or 20 minutes, and there's a lot more information in there, so I'm only going to paint the corner with my pitches here. But there was basically there was $77 million in public money. It's called the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, TANF funds. And those are earmarked by the state of Mississippi to for the neediest families to use so they can have housing, clothing, food, shelter, help them pay their utility bills if they're behind. Uh, all sorts of stuff, okay? So, Shad White and the auditor's office for the state of Mississippi are claiming that Favre took this money from the families that need it and lined the pockets of the most powerful, rich and uh, the most powerful and rich families of the state of Mississippi. 
Now, according to this state audit in a civil lawsuit in which Favre and dozens of other people are named as defendants of in this case, Favre was paid $1.1 million in TANF funds for speeches, going around giving motivational speeches. Uh, according to the state auditor's office, though, however, Favre never made those public appearances. He never gave those speeches. Now, Favre, being at the time, was like, you know what? I don't want to be involved in this. I can tell this might be a little, excuse me, going a little bit south here. I'm going to go ahead and pay the money back. So Favre paid the money back to, to the TANF funds. He's like, I don't know what you guys are going to overturn here. I've not done anything wrong. But look here, in, in, in show good faith, Here's that $1.1 million back. Well, the state auditor's office determined that that wasn't good enough. They wanted Favre to also pay interest, quarter of almost a quarter of a million dollars in interest, like $228,000. Okay? Well, what's funny about this is Favre's alma mater, of course you all know, Favre played at the University of Southern Mississippi, uh, they received $5 million in TANF funds, according to a state audit. Now, why am I bringing this up? Is because text messages show that Brett Favre had pushed state officials for funding for a new volleyball facility on campus. Now, what makes this look bad is that he was pushing for this to be done while Brett Favre's daughter was on the collegiate volleyball team. Well... Uh, Fletcher Freeman continued yesterday with his press conference saying Mr. Favre has called Auditor White and his team liars despite repaying some of the money our office demanded from him. He's also claimed our auditors are liars despite clear documentary evidence showing the benefit from misspent funds. Instead of paying New York litigators to try this case, he'd better off fully repaying the amount of welfare funds he owes. Now, Brett Favre's attorneys, because Brett Favre hasn't really publicly spoke on this very much, Favre's attorneys said their lawsuit that they have seen no records indicating Mr. Favre knew what was going on with the money. Which, again, I said in previous episodes in the past that this is absolutely very plausible. Um, now, as far as the lawsuits and how we get to Favre throwing defamation character lawsuits against both Shannon Sharp and... Uh, and uh, Pat McAfee, which I love both guys, by the way. Shannon Sharp was a great tight end. Maybe one of the greatest tight ends ever played the game. Uh, I could make that call. Of course, you all know Shannon's got that absolutely phenomenal show with Skip Bayless called Skip and Shannon Undisputed on FS1. Favre's lawsuit alleges that Sharp defamed the character of Brett Favre on his broadcast by saying Brett Favre was a sorry motherfucker to steal from the lowest of the low. Favre stole money from the people that really needed it the most. He's a lousy, sorry motherfucker. Okay. <laughs> okay, so what about Pat McAfee? Now, of course, Pat McAfee, you know, has his own podcast and his own show. Now, according to this lawsuit, McAfee is called Favre a thief who, quote, steals from poor people in Mississippi. The suit's accusing McAfee of making similar remarks on Twitter. Now, Far spokesperson has refused to comment on the lawsuits uh, ever since this information was brought into public eye over the last couple of days. Far's camp is silent. Now, Far's lawsuits also note, though, that the numerous charities that have benefited from his Far for Hope Foundation. 
which is a foundation that bread is has established. Bread has established this to uh, help disadvantaged and disabled children and breast cancer patients. Breast cancer awareness is something that's really important to Brett Favre. I've never done any digging. I don't know if his mother was had something happen to her or his wife or someone in his family or a close friend, whatever. I haven't dug into this. All I know is that uh, breast cancer awareness is is a, is a cause that is absolutely near and dear to Brett Favre's heart. Um, now, uh, I just lost my train of thought. Now, the, the one other piece of puzzle, the one other, I'm so excited, one other piece to this puzzle that um, I didn't really talk about past episodes, and I encourage you to get your Google machine and check this out, is Prevacus. Prevacus is a company that's developing concussion drug. Uh, Prevacus has been in the news um, they've been in the news because they've also received TANF funds and their shit doesn't seem to be on the up and up. Now, how this is tied in is because they're developing a concussion drug, uh, Prevacus is. Brett Favre was the top outside investor in this drug. Now, this did make a lot of headlines uh, when they start talking about Prevacus uh, back in the fall. So I encourage you, if you have absolutely no idea about Prevacus and how this ties in, to look that up. As always, this has blossomed to be one of the biggest stories in sports in the last couple of years. Uh, and I'm going to keep you updated every chance I get on this. Uh, personally, I know a lot of people are shitting on Brett Favre. I'm not ready to climb on that wagon just yet. This is Brett Favre. This is a fucking legend. This is... Uh, you got to understand, only an idiot would not know what money's coming into his account and what money's going out and where it's going. But at the same time, when you're a multi-million dollar retired athlete and you've got endorsements here or there and you've got a team of people, you got a team of people handling your shit that some of them guys you don't see but maybe once or twice a year. You're always looking at them through your little idiot box in your hand. It's possible that some things could happen that you're not made privy to. So no, you know, and I don't know what the whole internet opinion is. Anything I see on the internet is all 50-50. 50 of like, fuck Brett Favre, what a piece of shit for doing this. And the other 50% is like, man, hey, Favre, Favre's not done nothing wrong here. Favre paid the money back. He just said, fuck you guys, I ain't going to pay your bullshit interest. So the internet community is split 50-50 on this from what I've seen on all the internet channels that I go on, all the Twitter accounts that I look at, all the Facebook pages that I look at, all the news sites that I look at. People are in the comment section are 50-50 on this. I'm personally right now going to take the reins with Brett Favre and say that Favre has done no wrong. And if you guys hate me, that's fine. Hey, I mean, this show's full of two idiots talking sports, hashtag tits. So, I mean, if you want to hate me, hey, Right, no such thing as bad PR. Uh, but anyways, I will keep you as updated on this as I possibly can. This has been the one of the top two, three biggest stories of sports in last year, and it's continuing to only get bigger. It's just like live golf. Eventually, it's going to just envelop everything around it. All right, guys, the last thing I want to talk about before we end on the NBA trade deadline is this Kobe Bryant piece that I was telling you about. You guys know how much I love Kobe Bryant. Uh, 
A signed Kobe Bryant jersey just sold at auction for $5.8 million. But this isn't just any jersey. This is a jersey worn during his MVP season in 2007-2008. And it is now currently uh, the most expensive Kobe Bryant item ever sold. And it holds the record as the second most expensive basketball jersey ever sold. Um, so... Uh, I'd like to read you something here. And I know I'm going to butcher this name. This jersey is an icon- is iconic in the way we seldom see in sports artifacts, said a guy named Braun Walker, who is the head of uh, so- Sotheby's Auction Services. Uh, I probably said that wrong. He said the image of Kobe wearing this particular jersey during the NBA playoffs has been permeated in popular culture, reprinted on murals, books, newspapers, and has become a symbol of his fierce determination and passion that has resonated with audiences across the world. When O'Brien was awarded what would be his only MVP trophy at the Staples Center on May 7, 2008, he was wearing this very uniform. He wore it for 25 of his 82 games that season, including six playoff games, most notably during that year's Western Conference Finals. Of course, we are referencing the number 24 jersey, as Kobe changed numbers, I believe it was in 06, or maybe it was 07. He switched from the 8 to the 24. Uh, now, some other information for you here. Uh, a jersey worn in Bryant's rookie season, which would have been a number 8 jersey, uh, which was signed, that sold for $3.6, almost $3.7 million in May of 2021. It was the highest selling jersey of all time. Well, uh, that changed uh, back in September of this year when a Michael Jordan jersey that he wore in Game 1 of the 1998 Finals against the Jazz, that would be the last dance for all you people to show, uh, that sold via Sobeys for like uh, almost uh, $10.1 million. Now, what really makes this interesting as far as sports memorabilia goes there's only been a handful of non-sports card items that have ever surpassed the $5 million mark. There was a Babe Ruth jersey from 1928-1930s era that sold for $5.6 million in June of 2019 uh, with a company called Hunt Auctions. That was the first sports piece memorabilia that was non-card related to sell and pass $5 million. Uh, since then, uh, go back to uh, this past summer, or, uh, or late summer, early fall, our Weeknight Chronicle episodes, uh, Muhammad Ali's ring belt, uh, the Rungle in the Jumble belt, uh, sold for six point eight, uh, almost $6.2 million. Uh, that was Jim Ursay, I do believe. I could be wrong on that. Uh, Olympic Games manifestos from 1892 sold for like almost $9 million. Uh, some soccer jerseys, which I don't know shit about soccer. Diego Mardona's Hand of God jersey sold for just under $10 million, like 9.2. So uh, I just think that's absolutely tremendous. Uh, I love sports memorabilia. As I've said, if you guys ever want to find a way to pass the time, you just want to get on, uh, hop on your Google machine or actually get on ES- or, uh, eBay. And just look up, you know, sports memorabilia and set your filter to highest priced first or whatever. 
and just look at some of these items. You will be absolutely mesmerized by what you see and the prices attached to them. All right, so uh, let's let's uh, let's start to wrap it up here. Let's end it. Let's talk about some NBA trade deadline. And the only reason I'm doing this is because there was a lot of moving pieces here at the trade deadline, and uh, I've not watched one single NBA game all season. Uh, that's the first time I think I can ever say that in the last ten or fifteen years. In the last ten years, since 2023. This will be the first time I've not watched a single game yet. But we're just basically at the halfway point of the season, so we got time. Uh, but some big trades went down. Uh, for the second time this week, uh, the Brooklyn Nets have just dealt away their star player. So Kevin Durant is now – Kevin Durant has been acquired by the Phoenix Suns in a four-team deal that also involved both the Milwaukee Bucks and the Indian Pacers. And I'm going to try to break these down uh, without this whole list of trades. I'm going to go through this trade track. I'm going to try to break all these down without butchering any names. I know there's some new guys. I'm going to butcher some names. Uh, or I might just leave them out. Then you can hop your Google machine. But anyways, so the Brooklyn Nets are going to receive Michael Bridges, Cam Johnson, uh, and first-round picks in 2023, 25, 27, and 29. A first-round pick swap in 2028, and second-round picks in 2028-2029. The Bucks are going to get Jay Crowder. I love Jay Crowder, by the way. The Pacers are bringing back George Hill. We also get Serge Ibaka. Three future second-round picks in cash consideration. So now Durant's gone. They'd already got rid of Kyrie, which blew my mind. Now you got Durant. So it's all rebuilding in Brooklyn now. The L.A. Clippers are getting Mason Plumlee from the Charlotte Hornets for Reggie Jackson and a second-round pick in 2028. The Portland Trailblazers have acquired Cam Reddish. I love Cam Reddish. They get Cam Reddish and some other players in a 2023 first-round pick and a four-team deal that's going to involve the New York Knicks, the 76ers, and the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, None of these guys... Other guys' names really matter, and there's just some first-round and second-round picks and cash considerations. Uh, I love Cam Reddish. Of course, you know, my other best friend, Jeremy, is a huge Duke fan. Uh, I love watching Duke play. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Hoosiers fan, but I always tell everybody, I'm a Hoosiers fan, but I'm actually a college basketball fan. I love there, – there, there's like 20 different teams I love watching in college basketball. Duke's one of them, man. But at the end of the day, I'm going to bleed crimson cream for IU. Uh, and rock the candy stripes, as Ty Hunter would say. But uh, I love Cam Reddish, so this is this is phenomenal for for Portland. Uh, the Clippers have acquired Eric Gordon. Eric Gordon still playing? Wow. Uh, the, listen to this trade here: the Los Angeles Clippers acquired Eric Gordon and three future second round picks and a three team trade with the Houston Rockets and the Memphis Grizzlies. The Rockets received John Wall, Danny Green, and a protected second-round pick. The Grizzlies will receive Luke Kennard. Wow, Kennard. Uh, Oklahoma City, the Boston Celtics acquired Mike Muscula from Oklahoma City Thunder in exchange for Justin Jackson and some second-round picks. Josh Richardson's on the move. Gary Payton II's on the move. Sadiq Bay. Uh, let's see if we got anything else down here that's really worth a shit. 
I thought something, I seen something about Mo Bamba. Oh, yeah, here. So the Lakers got rid of PBAF. I love PBAF. So the Lakers traded Patrick Beverly to the Orlando Magic in a four-team trade with the Clippers and the Denver Nubjics. Uh The Magic said Beverly is not required to report. The Lakers are going to get Mo Bamba, Devon Reed, and a second-round pick. The Nuggets are going to get Thomas Bryant. Uh, Westbrook was traded to the Jazz in a three-team deal uh, involving uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, D'Angelo Russell is coming back to the Lakers. Uh, Malik Beasley and Jared Vanderbilt from the Jazz are also going to L.A. The Timberwolves are going to get Mike Conley Jr., baby. Wow. The Spurs got Dwayne Deadman, Deedman, excuse me, Deedman. Uh, just moving pieces, moving pieces galore. Okay, so I've, I've got you up to date on like 80% of the trade news. The rest of it's not that important. I mean, the Kyrie thing was a couple days already. Uh, moving pieces to the NF or to the NBA. What that means now? That's a very very interesting. D'Angelo Russell is back in L.A. And correct me if I'm wrong. I know I've kind of came out of the closet as a Lakers fan, but correct me if I'm wrong. But didn't D'Angelo Russell? Get sent packing from L.A. He didn't leave willingly. They traded him because of the issue with Swaggy P. And by the way, where the hell is Swaggy P? He's not even still playing in the NBA anymore, is he? I don't know. That's for another time. So, uh, at any rate, guys... um, this has been a, a, a Weeknight Chronicles edition here on an early Friday morning. Uh, got a lot of great content coming up. Uh, fingers crossed for all you Puck fans out there. I talked to my homeboy, uh, Tyson Kramer. Tyson, I know you're listening. Shout out, Tyson. Uh, if all goes according to plan, tomorrow night, Saturday night, February the 11th, uh, I'm going to be a loser and stay in. I have a daddy-daughter dance. Going to take my 8-year-old and my 4-year-old to a daddy-daughter dance. After I take them back to their mothers, I'm coming home. Going to be a loser and stay in on a Saturday night. And if all goes according to plan, me and the homie Tyson going to have a little state of the puck for you guys. Because we haven't done a state of the puck since November. And there's a lot of hockey shit to talk about as the trade deadline went down for uh, the National Hockey League. And uh, the Blues traded my boy, Tarasenko, with the New York Rangers, which is now going to give them a uh, a top six, essentially. Um, so there's that. And the rumor mill churns. I'm not going to confirm nor deny this. I'm just going to say the rumor mill is churning that there will be another episode of Steel Toes and Scoreboards coming out Sunday night. Maybe a little bit before the Super Bowl or after just a penny. But that's the rumor mill churns. That's 
That's not set in stone yet. But at any rate, um, I want to thank you guys for uh, always being supportive. Uh, for Kirk Kelly, I'm Jared Atkins. And uh, I'm going to leave you guys a little outgoing music. Thank you for your support. Uh, we will absolutely...